You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Cindy Johnson. Welcome. It is March 5th, 2023, and this is episode 215 of Lighthearted. This is kind of a bizarro world episode because the interview subject is the host of Lighthearted, Jeremy Dontremont. And the interviewer is Bob Trapani Jr., author, photographer, and executive director of the American Lighthouse Foundation. Hi, Jeremy and Bob. Hey, Cindy. Congratulations <laughs> on doing the opening to the show for the first time ever. You did, <laughs> you did great. Well, thank you. You know, I almost said my name is Jeremy Dontremont because I've heard you <laughs> because I've heard you say it so many times. Yeah, me too. So. I've, I've heard myself say it too many times. <laughs> hey, Bob. Hey, Jeremy and Cindy. Quite a historic moment here. This is uh, nice <laughs> to be a part of this one. So, Jeremy, what was it like to be interviewed after doing more than 200 episodes where you interviewed other people? Uh, it was definitely strange, mm -hmm. but it helped that I was uh, being interviewed by Bob. Of course, we've known each other for for what, Bob, 25 years or so? Yeah. Thereabouts. Yeah. yeah. So it was, it was like just like having a friendly conversation. How did you feel about it, Bob? It was kind of strange being on this end of it, but I have to say uh, when you're, you know, we, we're kindred spirits in many ways with these types of things. So I thought the conversation was as you noted, like a friendly conversation, we could have been at a lighthouse anywhere having that conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been on the podcast, what, at least three or four times. Uh, so I want to thank you more than that, actually. I think probably more like five or six now by now. Uh, so thank you for, for taking part so often and for, for coming up with the idea for this. Uh, you know, um, we've known each other as friends and comrades in arms, I would say, in the field of lighthouses for so long. I really don't think there's anybody else who could have done this interview. And uh, we've kind of kept up on what the other is doing for the, over the years. So just thank you so much for, for coming up with this idea and doing such a good, good job with it, Bob. You're welcome, Jeremy. So usually on this podcast, we give a little background on the subject before we hear an interview. So here's some quick info on today's interviewee, Bob, if you could just please help me out. Sure thing, Cindy. Jeremy Dontremont was born in Fort Knox, Kentucky, but spent most of his childhood in Lynn, Massachusetts, near the ocean. Jeremy's stepfather, William Merriman, was descended from shipbuilders and sea captains in Maine, and there were fishermen and lighthouse keepers in Nova Scotia on Jeremy's mother's side of the family. Another important influence was Edward Rose Snow, the popular author and master storyteller of the New England coast. Jeremy graduated from Emerson College in Boston with a bachelor's degree in filmmaking. Visiting and photographing lighthouses became a hobby in the 1980s, and that hobby grew into a career. He joined the board of directors of the American Lighthouse Foundation in the 1990s and began writing articles about lighthouse history late in that decade. Jeremy launched his website, New England Lighthouses, a virtual guide in the late 1990s. Between 2002 and 2023, he's written more than 20 books and has edited several others. His most popular book, The Lighthouse Handbook, New England, was published by Cider Mill Press and has had four editions. Jeremy also wrote a Lighthouse Handbook for the West Coast. Jeremy has served as president of the American Lighthouse Foundation for a couple of stretches, and in 2001, he founded Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses as a chapter of the foundation. He also served as the foundation's historian. For 11 years, Jeremy ran his own business called New England Lighthouse Tours. 
giving day-long minivan tours along the coast to as many as seven lighthouses in one day. He's also given hundreds of lectures and narrated cruises all around the region. Four years ago, Jeremy started working for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, helping to grow and maintain the Society's online research catalog. That led to the launching of this podcast in June 2019. Jeremy also frequently hosts special virtual events and helps to run some of the Society's tours in the U.S. and other countries. The recent talk you guys had has been divided into two parts, and today we'll hear part one. So let's listen to that conversation now. Welcome, Jeremy. Hey, Bob. Thank you. This is great. Love it. (laughs) Oh, you're welcome. So, Jeremy, even though your podcast super listeners have had the pleasure of getting to know you through your many interviews, conversations with co-hosts, and the wealth of knowledge that you share, I am certain Lighthouse enthusiasts and friends alike are going to be amazed to learn there is so much more to your Lighthouse talents and contributions than meets the eye. Mm. You and I have known each other for over a quarter century. Oh, wait, that (laughs) makes us sound old. How about 25 years? Does that sound any better? Joking aside, I'm proud to call you a dear friend. We have shared many Lighthouse experiences together over the years. The fun and friendship has been off the charts. I can't wait to see what the next 25 years bring. Only then might we be old. Uh, what do you <laughs> Should we I'll, di- I'll only be 91. So oh, there not, you go. Yeah. Hey, why don't we uh, why don't we dive right into this interview? You okay with that? Sounds good. Yeah. It's your show, Bob. So my show. <laughs> yeah. Sounds great. So let's set the table with this question, Jeremy. When did your interest in lighthouses begin? Hmm. Well, it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment or anything, but I, I grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, just north of Boston on the North Shore, you know, by the coast. And I didn't have an interest in lighthouses as a kid, but I, I, I used to say I wanted to be a marine biologist. I was fascinated by the ocean. And we used to go to the beach and I used to look out on an island called Egg Rock. And it wasn't until many years later that I found out there had been a lighthouse there. But there was something about Egg Rock that drew me. I was just fascinated by by the island and, uh, you know, just the ocean in general. Later uh, in the 80s, I moved to Winthrop, Massachusetts, which was the hometown of Edward Rowe Snow, who was a very popular historian of the New England coast for many years. And also the Flying Santa to lighthouses, as you know, for, for many years. And I was lucky enough to, to meet him when I was, I was younger a couple of times. Uh, and he was a huge influence on me. And then in the, the 80s, when I moved to Winthrop, he had already passed away, but I ended up producing a series of videos about his life for the local cable TV station, community access, as they call it, uh, station. And that that got me more into lighthouses. I got to know his, his wife and uh, daughter, Dolly, very well. And I started visiting lighthouses, started photographing them and that. So I would, I would put it about the mid-1980s that I... I got the the lighthouse bug in a really serious way, starting with photographing them and then learning about the history as I went along. That's awesome. And you mentioned Edward Rose Snow. Was there any further connections uh, with Edward Rose Snow as you remember growing up? Well, when I was growing up in the Boston area, he was he was just a big personality who was very well known in the area. He uh, was always on Boston radio and TV. There used to be a, a show on both radio and TV called Contact of the host Bob Kennedy, not the Robert Kennedy, but another Bob Kennedy. And, and uh, Snow used to be on that a lot. And uh, I would, you know, listen to it or see him on TV telling stories of pirates and shipwrecks and all this cool stuff. And I can remember running to tell my mother to repeat the stories to my mother after I had heard 
him tell them. So uh, definitely a big influence. And uh, I got to meet him at a book signing. I think that would have been about 1973. And I did a tour of Fort Warren and uh, on George's Island and Boston Harbor with him, a walking tour with him in a group uh, circa 1979, which was a thrill for me. Oh, yeah. I bet. You know, oftentimes um, who we were prior to becoming proficient in a field like lighthouses, like you've become, there's other experiences that help shape our talents and our interests. In your case, I know that you have a love of video production and archives. Can you share with us how this passion from a previous professional experience has dovetailed into some of your lighthouse pursuits, including the Lighthearted Podcast? Sure. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I've always loved movies and production of, of all kinds. And uh, I went to Emerson College in Boston, got a, a BFA in film production, uh, and never actually made a living in that field, but I feel that the, it was a really good experience. I did some radio back in the 80s. I did. Uh, I was part of a group that did a comedy radio show uh, at the MIT uh, Community Radio Station and also at Boston College for a while. That was a really fun experience. And I've just always enjoyed production of any kind, whether it's audio or video or film or you know any, any of that. I just, I just enjoy that process. And, and I've always dabbled in video production. And in my few years working for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, I've done a number of videos and, and things like that. I've done a couple of lighthouse-related music videos. Soon after I started working for the society, I came up with the idea of the podcast. And Jeff Gales, the director of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, loved, loved the idea. So I ran with it. And it's, it is a, a way for me to kind of bring together my love of lighthouses, obviously, and my love of uh, production, uh, even though audio production is quite different from from film production, there are similarities and just putting together a, a show, basically, you know, a coherent show. So I love I love the whole process. Awesome. So in your early years, historic Boston Light had had a must have had a profound impact on you. If so, can you tell us why? Yeah, Boston Light was a, uh, really important to me because, again, I, I mentioned I was living in Winthrop, Mass., which is right on Boston Harbor. It's a peninsula that sticks out into the the, uh, the northern part of the harbor. And uh, I got involved in the late 70s with uh, Friends of the Boston Harbor Islands. And then in the 80s, uh, I started helping them give tours. Uh, I'm sorry, I said I got involved in the late 70s. That wasn't quite right. It was more, it was in the 80s. It was like in the mid 80s, I got involved with the Friends. And they, at the time, were the only organization giving tours at Boston Light. This is before the Park Service was involved and was giving tours. But uh, they were doing periodic tours in the summer, not every week, but, you know, several a year. And I, I was one of the people helping to give those tours in the late 1980s. And I uh, got to know some of the Coast Guard keepers at Boston Light at that time, including Dennis Dever, who you know, a mutual oh, friend of oh, ours. Oh, well, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he looked like he was going to be the last lighthouse keeper in the country. But the, as you know, legislation was passed to keep a human presence at Boston Light. So as it turned out, Dennis wasn't the last keeper, but uh, he had a great time out there and it was fun working with him. So Boston Light really had a lot to do with sparking my kind of intense interest in lighthouses. You know, it's an amazing place, you know, not just the the th more than 300 years of history is phenomenal that you feel when you're, you're there. Aside from that, it's just such a beautiful place. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was uh, very important to me. Oh, that's 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 a terrific recap of Boston Light for what impact it's made on you. So you were researching and documenting important lighthouse events 
prior to the public's interest in lighthouses exploding, you know, during the mid 1990s, when we saw a big rise in interest in lighthouses, I know that you've attended a very historically significant event at Portland Headlight in 1989, the 200th anniversary of America's Lighthouse Service. In hindsight, what lighthouse milestones or events from the mid 1980s on stand out as you as being special? Well, that one you mentioned would be right up there at the top of the list, being there on August 7th, 1989 at Portland Headlight, the 200th anniversary of the U.S., the formation of a National Lighthouse Service uh, in 1789, and a big crowd there at Portland Head, and uh, Senator George Mitchell, Mitchell spoke, the uh, Rear Admiral in charge of the Coast Guard District spoke, and uh, F. Ross Holland, the late historian, uh, was the keynote speaker that day, So, and the what was then called the Portland Lightship and uh, was actually a Nantucket Lightship was offshore, uh, blasted its foghorn during the event and so forth. So it was it was very memorable. Around that same time, speaking again of Boston Light, uh, in October '89, legislation when the legislation was passed to keep a presence to keep uh, Coast Guard keepers at Boston Light, I was at Boston Light for the press conference with Senator Ted Kennedy and others, and I believe I'm the only one who videotaped that whole. Uh, event so that was extremely memorable. Well, those those two certainly come come right to mind. Um, if you give me a little time, maybe I can think of some other events <laughs> around that time. But it was just it was an interesting time because I mean there were certainly a number of conferences uh, in the in the '90s and the early 2000s that I attended that were quite memorable. The late '90s, I was in Key West, Florida for for a conference for an international lighthouse conference. It was actually cut short by a hurricane, so that in itself made it quite memorable. But uh, it was at those conferences where I got to meet a lot of the the leaders in the the National Lighthouse uh, Preservation Movement. Well, I think that's important what you were saying as far as both of them. When I look at the uh, the Portland Head and the Boston Light experiences prior to 1990, uh, we were still where there was still a few lighthouses still staffed by keepers. So we were right at the end of that that experience or that era. And then as these conferences, they, they really did become a big part of the lighthouse movement in the late 90s and into the early 2000s because of the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act and the importance that was suddenly being applied, and rightfully so, on the preservation of lighthouses in general and how groups would, could be successful in doing this. So uh, you were definitely witnessing two errors at the end of one and the start of another. With That's that. right. Oh, there's no, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. So I mentioned research in a prior question. And something, it's something you excel at, and not just at seeking out you know, or bygone information and stories, but also how you organize and present all of this information. Uh, I know you're quite talented and zealous in this endeavor. There is one as aspect of your research, though, that shines brightest to me, and that's your commitment to ensuring that the facts are correct, staying as true as possible to the details and events that help comprise all these stories. Can you talk a little bit about how you strive for that accuracy and how challenging it is? It can be to cross-check references and all these multiple sources. It is a, a huge challenge. I think it's one of the biggest challenges facing anybody writing about history, uh, no matter how much training if you had as a historian. I think you run into conflicts, uh, you know, um, conflicting sources. It's probably true at any any level of history, but certainly with uh, sort of localized history with a particular lighthouse, you might find 10 different newspaper articles about one event that happened there, and they all differ in some way in the facts. 
Um, so you have to try to use uh, common sense sometimes to sort out what what may have actually happened. But also, a lot of times in my writing, I'll say according to an article in the such and such newspaper, this and this happened. But according to this, you know, so sometimes you have to. Sometimes you can't really determine exactly what the precise facts were about a certain event. So it's it's difficult, um, and there's a lot out there that's that's wrong. And uh, any, I don't care who you are, we all make mistakes. And I've certainly made mistakes in my my writing and my books and so forth. I try to correct them when I can. Uh, that's one of the nice things about a website as opposed to a book. So I have my website in New England Lighthouses. And if I discover something, oh, I had that wrong all this time, I'll go right in and fix that. But I, it's not so easy to do that with a book that's out, you know, out there in print. But if you have the chance to do a new edition, uh, which actually I'm going to be doing a new version of my book on Lighthouses of Connecticut, I'll get to update and uh, maybe correct some little bits of information that I might not have had precisely right the first time. So it's it's a it's a struggle, and it's not just it's not just newspaper articles too. It's government documents are not always entirely reliable. That is true. Uh, you know, everybody's human. Everybody throughout history has, has made mistakes in recording some of this stuff. So you just have to try to find uh, multiple source documents when you can. Uh, but even then, it's it's not always it's more of an art than a science. It's not actually always uh, an easy thing to do at all. Well, I think the, I think you said it, your, your willingness to correct information, which uh that's that's really awesome. The other part is just staying attentive through the years and keeping your eyes out for new information that may help, you know, bring to light new facts or to to bring the the the, uh, the I won't say the truth, but a clearer vision of the story that you're trying to that you're trying to portray in these uh, you mm -hmm. know stories or books that uh, come to mind. That you you're constantly on the lookout for that kind of thing. So a researcher's job is never done. Yeah. If I could mention a specific example of the kind of thing we're talking about, Owl's Head Lighthouse, your your home office for the American Lighthouse Foundation. Uh, in my original uh, version of Lighthouses of Maine, the book I did, I said that it was never rebuilt after it was built in 1825. And that was not the only source that said that. And then I discovered, as you well know, uh, and I think it was partly through research by the late Candace Clifford, who we knew was the historian for the U.S. Lighthouse Society, among other things, um, that uh, it was rebuilt in 1852. But for some reason, that got left out of a lot of a lot of places. So in my the my main lighthouses book was was reissued as four regional volumes, and in the the new uh, volume for Penobscot Bay region, I was able to correct and update that that information. Uh, but that awesome. uh, the original lighthouse of Maine is out there in the world, and there's not much I can do about that. I can't find all the copies and cry and, and write in the margins. So <laughs> that's that really that's the way it goes. In all your lighthouse research, what are some of your favorite aspects of it? That's tough. I, I enjoy I enjoy research. I've enjoyed uh, some trips I've done over the years where I've gone along the coast to various libraries and historical societies and sat there for hours at a time going through file folders and boxes of materials. Same thing at the National Archives, same thing at the National Archives branch in Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, at those places, they make you wear cotton gloves. And if you're writing, you have to use a pencil, et cetera, et cetera. There's certain rules you got to follow. But that kind of adds to the fun in a way. It makes it feel really important. You're handling these documents from the sometimes from the 1700s or 1800s. 
and uh, you got to be careful with them. So I've enjoyed that hands-on research. I have to say in, in more recent years, there's not as much of that because a lot of that material uh, is now online. So there are websites, you know, there are various newspaper archive websites like newspaperarchive.com, newspapers.com, and so forth that provide thousands and th many, many thousands of uh, newspapers you can search through online, which certainly makes our job easier. In a way, I kind of miss that, that hands-on stuff. Of course, with the newspapers, the libraries used to have to go through microfilm looking for things. Sure which yeah. was kind of a pain because it was hard to read sometimes. So the you mostly these digitized versions of these newspapers are somewhat better than looking at the microfilm. I do kind of miss that traveling to these different historical societies, but there's something to be said for sitting at home and, and uh, doing research on your computer too. But um, the, the way it was years ago, I would think it's almost like finding some treasure, you know, mm -hmm. a little piece of gold, you know, you find it in a box or whatever. Um, you know, it's uh, and and sometimes the interaction with the people that would help you. Uh, tends yes. to, you, you learn a little bit about that too. So uh, yeah, the research has definitely changed how we do it. I think in some ways it's made it a lot easier, but yes, like you just pointed out, there are some aspects that, that maybe we miss a little bit too. It's a little less but, personal. Yeah. 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 Well, that's kind of where we're at in this digital world today. So this topic of research leads me right into the next question. And that is, when did you write your first Lighthouse book and what was its title? Well, first, uh, depends on your definition of writing a book. Uh, in the early 2000s, starting about 2002, well, I was writing articles before that, mainly for Lighthouse Digest magazine, going back a bit before that. But in about 2002, I was uh, kind of recruited to edit and annotate uh, some new editions of books by Edward Rowe Snow, you know, my childhood hero, who, sure. who was so influential in getting me into all this. And the first one, the first ones we did were lighthouses of New England and islands of Boston Harbor. And eventually over the, the next few years, I think uh, from about 2002 to 07, there were seven new editions of his books we did, which are still mostly still out there in print. They're still available. Uh, so the same publisher who did those, which was Commonwealth Editions, which has since been sold, became part of Applewood Books, which then became part of uh, the History Press. So it's now all part of the History Press. But um, they contracted me to uh, write a book on Lighthouses of Connecticut. So that was, I believe that came out in 05. I think I'm remembering that right. Pretty sure it was 2005. So Lighthouse of Connecticut became the first in a series of regional lighthouse books I did for them. I did Rhode, Then I did Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and Maine. So yeah, so the, to answer your question, it was a long way of answering your question. The answer is uh, Lighthouse of Connecticut would have been the first uh, Lighthouse book. And now it's kind of coming full full circle and then I'm going to be doing a new expanded version of Lighthouses of Connecticut for the History Press uh, coming next year. So in all, how many books have you either authored or been involved with? What's Maybe you don't have that exact number, but what are we, over two dozen? Uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, it depends on your definitions. Like, what do you consider a, a new book? I, As I mentioned earlier, I did a book on Lighthouses of Maine, which was, I forget, it was like more than 500 pages, I think. And then that was divided into four regional volumes. So do we count that as as one book, as four books, as five books? <laughs> so that largely depends on your definition. Then I did like a, a, you know, some of them are shorter books. Some of them are less than 100 pages or a little over 100 pages. 
I guess you consider those books. <laughs> I do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like I did a, a history of Portsmouth Harbor Light, a short book, and then I expanded that into a somewhat larger, longer book, but still on the short side compared to some of them. So to answer your question, if you count the books I edited, the editor of Snow Books I edited and a couple of others I've pretty much edited, uh, you're talking close to 30. But if you're talking books where I'm the sole, sole author, it's uh, I'm going to say a little over 20. Okay. Well, I will say this. I mean, you were talking about the Edward Rose Snow Books. I think um, one of the really cool things that I see from that is, is your involvement in updating them and, and bringing some additional information forward is, is that you brought these great works back into the forefront of, the, of not only the lighthouse community, but the maritime community. And I think that's been great because I think a lot more people will have been introduced to Edward Rose Snow as an author, thanks to the work you've done with that. And that in turn brings all that old history back to the forefront. So I thought that was an important contribution. Well, thank you for saying that. I just want to mention that one of the Edward Rose notebooks I was involved in editing and getting back out in print is called the P A Pilgrim Returns to Cape Cod. I think I believe you, you know the book. I do. That is probably my favorite of his books, and it's very different from all the rest, and it's not as well known. So I just want to recommend that people seek that out if they're interested in finding out more about him and the stuff he wrote about because in that case he was writing about a, a journey he did himself it's very it's a very personal book he walked the length of cape cod and talked to different people so a lot of it is his personal experiences interwoven with the history of cape cod uh and uh i just like that that fact about it it makes it unique so kind of in the footsteps of henry david thoreau who wrote the book cape cod and they also walked the length of Cape Cod. So. You, you know, that's a, that is, a, that is true. I, I've read both and uh, there's a, there are, there's a similar feel about the personal concept of them walking that. And I love when Edward would stop at the lighthouse and talk to the keepers and yes. in that book. Yeah. It's just fantastic. So well, you, you mentioned just uh, in passing there, but we're talking about your books, you mentioned, um, you know, magazine articles as well. Uh, so yes, your writing has not been confined to books alone. Um, you've also authored, I don't know, countless features stories over the last few decades for journal magazines, journals and magazines like the United States Lighthouse Society's Keeper's Log and Lighthouse Digest Magazine, just to name a couple. And in these articles, you often share wonderful memories of lighthouse keepers and their families, the life they lived. Uh, writing these types of stories is obviously a bit different than writing a book. To me, it seems like you can kind of focus more on the specific memories and events. Am I right about that? And what stands out about those stories, writing those types of stories versus the book? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is special and it is it is different. Um, although I will say I won't mention a book we haven't mentioned yet that I'm really proud of. And it's along the lines of the type of stuff you're talking about. It's a book I did called Everyday Heroes, The True Story of a Lighthouse Family. I worked with Simon Ponsart Roberts, who was the daughter of a lighthouse keeper in Massachusetts back in the uh, 30s and 40s and 50s. And uh, Simon uh, lives in Louisiana now, and she was giving me these stories about her childhood at these lighthouses. And I kept saying, we got to make this into a book. So uh, the stories were just kind of all over the place. And I helped kind of weave them into a, a you know, a coherent narrative, basically. And uh, I'm very proud of that book because, again, it's keeping those those uh, that that personal history alive uh, that the you and I, uh, I think, feel is so important is probably 
the most important part of all of this. This is the human history. We gotta we gotta keep that alive. So um, yeah, and a lot of the articles I've written, uh, that's been the focus. It's it's also the focus in the lectures I do and so forth. It's also the focus of a lot of the podcast episodes as well. Sure. Yeah. So I I, I see it as kind of a mission to keep these uh, this this human history alive. Sometimes some of these articles have grown out of people contacting me. A lot of times they'll email me and they'll say, oh, my my father was a keeper. My grandfather was a keeper or whatever it might be. And they uh, give me some information I didn't have before. And you're talking before about finding gold, finding treasure. That's what that's like. It is. You find this information that's never been published before. Um, so it, I've been lucky enough to be able to weave some of the the, the uh, material that people have have sent to me kind of out of the blue, you know, to weave those into some of these articles, which is just so much, so much fun. And, and, and oftentimes, like you said, when these people have contacted you, they've shared, maybe it's only one or two, maybe it's multiple photos, but a lot of times with your stories, you can share a lot more photos, personal photos from photo albums that maybe can't, you know, you wouldn't be able to fit into a book. Um, but yeah, I mean, for years, I've read your stories about these keepers and families. It's, uh, they're fun reads and uh, you do a great job with them. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You just reminded me about people sending pictures. A guy named Steve Reed in Oregon sent me a whole mess of photos from the 1950s when his father was the keeper at Nubble Light, Cape Kinetic uh, Nubble Light in, in York, Maine. And I did get to use those in the book I did on Nubble Light, all about Nubble Light, the book is called. And the center part of the book is the Reed family album. <laughs> so it was cool to be able to to use those they they were tremendous photos i remember seeing them and it's just like even at pond island you know it's just like mm -hmm. wow so yep, they were there too yeah so okay so while you're researching and writing about the lighthouses you often would couple these efforts with visiting the lighthouses themselves so how important was it then for you as a writer and as a researcher and still is to uh, take this documentation and then be able to retrace the steps of the keepers at these amazing places. And some of these places, of course, have been well offshore. How is it to fit that writing into these visits and you being able to bring that experience and your thoughts together like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it all works together. And I've always enjoyed writing about lighthouses most when I've been to them or I get to visit them as part of the process of, of writing about them. It's not quite the same to write about a lighthouse I've never been to, although the podcast interviewing people at some of these places is kind of a vicarious way of getting to know these places, but it's still not quite the same as actually getting there yourself. So um, yeah, the lighthouses of New England have a special uh, attachment for me because so many of them, I, they're like old friends. You know, I visited them many, many times. So I feel like I feel intimate with them. I feel like I know them so well. And that, and in a sense, that makes it easier for me to write about them. Um, maybe not so much if I'm, I've never been to a place. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question exactly. Well, but. I think you did. I think, you know, if I might add, I just think that sometimes when you visit a place, you can, you know, whether it's um, the grounds of a light station, the landing area, when you, uh, you can visualize that a little bit more. Uh, I think it allows uh, the memories that, that people share or the stories you've read uh, just to be, to come to life a little bit more, because in a lot of cases, though, a lot of the buildings and and what have you are gone. The the islands, the sites, they don't change. The, I often say the sea doesn't change. So when you're experiencing that, I I think it just has to dovetail right into your ability to express in writing 
you know, a little bit more or, or enhance what the keepers, the stories were and say, yeah, it, it indeed is this and, and more, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's no doubt that when I visit these places, I, I, I often think about the, the people of the past, the keepers and, and families who walk those same stairs and those same pathways and everything at Portsmouth Harbor lighthouse, my, my local lighthouse that you well know that I'm very involved with. I think about Joshua Card, the longtime keeper, and other keepers there all the time. So you just you just feel that. Um, and one other thing about that is, and I'm going to say something that I've said to you before, and I've said to some other people. I only I usually only say this to people that I know won't think I'm crazy. And some of the people listening to the podcast might think I'm crazy for saying this. But the thing is, I, I always feel like the lighthouses are speaking to me, like they have stories to tell. And uh, almost like they're calling out, please listen to my story. I just feel that like a communication with them in a sense. And I, I'm not the only person who feel, I think you might feel that way, but also uh, Lilla Mariotti, Italian author uh, who I interviewed for the podcast said the exact same thing. She feels like the lighthouses are talking to her. So I thought, okay, I'm not crazy. <laughs> I absolutely understand that totally. And I think that's when some of the deepest um, types of writings and and expressions of what we feel come out is when you do have that connection to something like that, because uh, these these places are not static in 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 our minds. You mm -hmm. know, so it's very much about the people. And there's been times when I've written about uh, stories, some of the heartache that took place in these these lighthouse families. I mean, I always in my lectures, I always say to people, you know, lighthouse keeping wasn't as romantic as you think. It was de partly depending on where you were. Some stations were a lot harder than others. But on the whole, it was difficult, it was dangerous, uh, and there was a lot of uh, hardship and sadness at, at a lot of these places. And I get emotionally involved in this stuff, and uh, it can be, I'm sure the same thing has happened to you. It can be almost overwhelming at times because you start almost like uh, living this stuff with these people when you really get into it. So it's- uh, sure. Yeah. If, if if lighthouses were were not emotional, I think we would all be much poorer for it. But they are very emotional uh, structures, and their history is very emotional. Um, we were, we were talking about photos, Jeremy, and I know with your research, of course, you have a you know a boatload of archival vintage photos and what have you. But you've also got an impressive collection of contemporary photos. Your photos, you know, in fact, you're an extremely talented photographer was equally adept at capturing both landscape and that subtle detailed imagery that we like to see at lighthouses. Uh, I know your joy of photography because I've been around you. It's evident. Can you talk a little bit about your passion for photography and how the images you capture can work hand in hand with your efforts to share the history of lighthouses? Sure. And as you're saying that, I, you know, I, I'm thinking you could just as easily be referring to your own work because I think you, uh, you share that, that love of, uh, the imagery of these places and the and capturing the detail and so forth and you're you're as good as anybody <laughs> as far as that goes so so wanted to throw that in but um for me it goes back to like when i was a teenager and i, I even before that i remember i had a brownie camera and if you know what brownie cameras were there i don't <laughs> it's a little camera with the you stick the flash bulbs in it and you know and you take a picture and the flash goes poof and you have to eject the flash bulb and put another one in before you take another flash picture um i'm sure a lot of our listeners who are uh, of a certain age remember those brownie cameras so i had one of those as a kid and then uh when i was about 18 and i i started uh well, I went to Emerson a little later. I started at a different college, but um, I, I think I forgot my first SLR, like 35 millimeter camera at about 18. 
and it was a Pentax K1000, which is a really basic manual camera. In fact, it was used a lot in classes to teach people photography. Uh, and I went through like three of those over the years, the Pentax K1000, until I got into digital photography. That the Otherwise, that's the only kind of camera I ever owned. And I love that. I still have, I think, a couple of those hanging around somewhere. I haven't used them in many years. But anyway, so um, I did black and white photography. I had a dark room for a while. Uh, in my early 20s, uh, really good into that, love black and white photography. So, and then, uh, you know, majoring in filmmaking at Emerson College, I took some uh, photography courses as well that got me more into it. But um, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think uh, photography is a common bug that people get, I think. I think a lot of our listeners understand uh, the attraction. Um, it's not just, it's partly just making a record of your visits to these places. So you can look back and say, that's where I was. It can help uh, kindle your memories, rekindle your memories and so forth. But it, it is finding that something, a unique way of looking at it, always looking for, for a new angle, literally sometimes on, on these things. And uh, not just, I mean, pretty, pretty pictures of lighthouses are nice calendar type photos and we all like taking those but it's it's nice finding something something a little bit new a new wrinkle whether it's a detail or an unusual angle or or whatever it might be yeah yeah i think and i don't know if this has been your experience but i know for me you know sometimes when we're at these lighthouse sites time is not in on your side sometimes you can take a photograph look back on that later and say i didn't notice something about that a detail yeah, uh, maybe it's around the light station, and I think uh, photos can actually, you know, in that sense, jog your memory or open your eyes to something you didn't see. That if you lingered, you probably would have found it, but a lot of times that's not always possible. So, especially like like if you're on a lighthouse cruise or whatever, and that boat is moving, and you you know you take that picture, but then when you look at it in detail, you're like, oh wow, look at that, and whatever. Yeah, um, you know, and I think too, what you said is, uh, yeah, I, I mean who doesn't like a pretty lighthouse photo? We all do. But I think um, when you can take photos that can help uh, bring out aspects of our lighthouse history or the emotions that we've been talking about, I, I think that's, I think that's cool. So there's, there's plenty to enjoy with photographs. You do a great job with it. I just thought that was important to bring up. Well, thank you. And I throw the compliment back at you too, as I said. So well, thank you. So we've discussed the fact that you've, authored these books and you pen these stories, but you've also created what I think is the finest website on the history of New England lighthouses as well. I know it's a resource countless people have utilized and enjoyed over the years as they try to learn about New England's lighthouses. The website is called New England Lighthouses, a virtual guide. What inspired you to build this website and make it such an informative resource for the public? Mm -hmm. Well, it goes back to the 90s. It goes back, I'm going to say about 96, 97. I actually produced, believe it or not, a CD-ROM on main lighthouses. I don't know if a lot of our younger listeners might think, what the heck is he talking about, a CD-ROM? CD-ROMs were kind of uh, a popular medium for uh, information and photos and so forth, really before the internet really took off, I would say. Uh, educational CD-ROMs were quite popular for a while. So I decided to produce a C of course, I produced this CD-ROM on main lighthouses, came out just around the time the internet really was kind of exploding. So CD-ROMs were becoming extinct. But um, that was my first major project, really, first major lighthouse project I did. So I put that out about, 
I forget it was 96 or 97, right around there. And uh, I first created the website as a way to kind of advertise the CD-ROM. So I put on a sampling of some of the lighthouses on the website, just a few at first, just to give people an idea of what was on the CD-ROM. And then I thought, well, this, why stop there? Why not, you know, expand the website to cover all of New England, which I did. So it took me a while to build it up to include every lighthouse in New England, both including lost ones as well. So there's about 200 lighthouses on there. So it was originally lighthouse.cc for many years. That was the the URL, the address of the, the site. But uh, that kind of confused people. And I ended up uh, getting uh, newenglandlighthouses.net is the URL now. Uh, but it's... Uh, it's it's evolved quite a bit from what it originally was, but and I'm always it's never done, <laughs> you know. It's the nature of these things. I'm always going in there, and uh, if somebody emails me some memories or whatever, I might stick it on the the section for that lighthouse, you know, about living there or whatever it might be, or about a particular storm, or you know, I'm always uh, putting things in there and um, uh, adding uh, the keepers lists. I've got lists of keepers for every lighthouse. And as you know, it can be kind of hard to fill in all the names of the Coast Guard keepers in the Coast Guard era, these these lighthouses. So if I find more information about that, I'm adding that in there as well. Yeah. I am, I'm certain many lighthouse keepers, families and stuff must enjoy seeing their information, their memories and pictures on your website. But I think what impressed me was, you know, you can find a lot of information about, light, I say a lot, I'll say you find a lot of generic information about lighthouses on the web. Uh, your site was really the first to be able to share uh, meaningful stories without the, uh, um, you know, I know some people get concerned sometimes about, well, that they might have a purpose for that information, but you seem to be able to present that information, let people find it, enjoy it, research it, uh, and still be able to write new and interesting books and things of that nature. It's been a huge help. I know you'll never know how much people have benefited from that website, but uh, if you like New England lighthouses, I mean, you you can spend a lot of time researching there and it's, it's mm -hmm. great. So thank you for that. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. And, uh, you know, just yesterday I interviewed uh, Craig Anderson of the Lighthouse Friends website, which is certainly, I think, the most popular lighthouse website out there. So I'm not competing with Craig, but, um, it, you know, it's nice to have more than one good website about about lighthouses. This is much more wider scope than mine, but I've, I've, you know, for the website, I've concentrated on the New England states and that's with about 200 lighthouses, that's enough to concentrate on. So what's that website again, Jeremy? NewEnglandLighthouses.net, not oh, .com, but .net. Thank you. So you've made, uh, no doubt you've made an impact on people with the research, but it doesn't stop there. I mean, I know over the years you've been able to take your passion and knowledge for lighthouses and share it even in person with many thousands of people. One of those in-person connections is lighthouse tours that you operated for some years. What was that experience like? And can you talk about how those personal connections brought lighthouses to life even more for those who took part in your tours? Hmm. Um, yeah, I did that for about 11 years. Uh, I gave tours. Originally, when I started, I called it New England Lighthouse Tours. And originally, when I started, I thought I was going to do bus tours and run like weekly bus tours and fill up a bus every week. And then I learned very quickly that that was my I'd set my sights a little little high as far as that goes. So I thought, well, let's scale it down a bit. And actually, early on, uh, I was sometimes renting a, a, a van, a larger van, as much as like a 15 passenger van 
wasn't real wild about driving that and giving a tour at the same time and parking it and everything else. So, so that didn't last too long either. I mean, especially, thought, in, especially in the summertime. <laughs> yeah. So then I thought let's scale it down even more, but do it more often. So I started doing minivan tours. First guy to Dodge Grand Caravan that had a little age on it, but it was really comfortable and ran well. Uh, eventually went to a Toyota Sienna, but so I would give tours for just, uh, maximum of six people but it's usually five because if you fit six you know you're you're a minivan guy yourself you a uh, little hard to fit six full-size adults into one of those minivans in addition right. to the driver so five was usually my maximum and i it was in the thousands of people i gave tours for over those 11 years generally i was doing it two or three sometimes more times a week but usually two or three or four times a week uh, from may to october and I had people from all over the U.S. You know, the state I had the most people from was Texas for some reason. Really, I had a lot of people from Texas, a lot of people from the South in general, a lot of people from the Midwest. I had people from the West Coast. I had people from Australia, from England, from Japan. And it was a real pleasure meeting these people and not just talking about lighthouses, but talking about where they were from. And, the, you know, for a lot of them, it was their first experience of New England. So I was trying to tell them about other things we're seeing besides lighthouses. Talking to somebody like you and you being able to connect them with so much, not just history, but your experience with them, it just had to bring it to life for them more than if they just had a generic tour. Yeah, yeah. Well, every tour was different, you know, and I always tried not to do like a canned presentation where I was just repeating the same stuff to every group. You might have like two couples on a tour or something, and they might have things in common and they start talking to each other and they really get along well. Uh, it was rare that they didn't get along well. And some, so sometimes I didn't do as much talking because they were talking to each other. Other times they would, they were uh, asking me a lot of questions. They wanted to know about a lot about the lighthouses. Uh, and so for me, in a way, every time I was doing one of these tours, it was almost like experiencing it anew for myself, you know, cause I'm seeing it through their eyes. So I'm bringing people to Portland headlight over and over and over again, but I didn't get tired of it at all because it, it always felt fresh to me because I'm, I'm bringing people there for the first time. Yeah, that's that's well said. That's well said. Uh, so people, you know, somebody from from Texas who's never seen the New England coast before, what better uh, thing to see? What's more emblematic of the New England coast than, say, Portland Headlight uh, or Noble Light or some of some of the others? So, uh, you know, I felt like uh, I'm giving them not just uh, a good taste of lighthouses, but a good taste of what the New England coast is all about. That's that's so true. You ask a hundred people what a lighthouse means to them, and they're going to probably give you. You're probably going to give a hundred different answers in some variation. So what you just said is absolutely that's true. That's it was well said. So, but it's you know it's not just lighthouse tours though, Jeremy. I mean, geez, how many lectures and how many cruises? I mean, I'm not asking you to give that number, <laughs> but when you think about the the, I'm trying to bring out the fact that you you have had the ability and uh, to impact people in so many ways their love of lighthouses, their introduction to lighthouses, they're, they're being enriched by your experiences in lectures and cruises. They play a part of that. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I've given, uh, it's over 200, uh, maybe closer to 300 by now. I'm not quite sure lectures. And I do a lot of them through something called New Hampshire Humanities nonprofit that actually pays, uh, you know, a, a fee to the speakers uh, so that libraries, if the li a library wants me to come and speak, 
the lot doesn't cost the library a cent the new hampshire humanities actually pays for it which is really nice um so i've done a lot through that but i've also done a lot in maine and new hampshire and i mean maine and massachusetts and other other places libraries historical societies yacht clubs um you know all kinds of social organizations and stuff and schools and colleges uh so that's been that's been great and as far as narrating cruises yeah i've done that all over new england and uh you know going back to the 90s with uh, or even the late 80s with friends of the boston harbor islands and it all it's all it's all interrelated everything kind of builds on everything else so i you know i feel the the more <laughs> let me just say something in general about all of this i mean uh i think anybody who's into deeply into almost any subject would would say this the more I learn about lighthouses, the less I feel I know, and the more you know, the more I don't know, um, and the more I need to learn. So I'm, I'm always learning, and I'm always bringing new stuff into the lectures and the cruise narration and so forth. Uh, and it's all a giant puzzle we're all trying to put together. That uh, let know. me ask you this: mm -hmm. when you've researched lighthouses, you've been around lighthouses like you have for you know decades now. Uh, you get some of these new people to lighthouses does that help kind of refresh your um appreciation of lighthouses not that you ever lose that but it brings a maybe even an there's a certain innocence when you see people first getting into lighthouses it's yeah. it's, it's so cool yeah well like i was saying with the tours i felt that way bring people to them for the first time you're seeing it through fresh eyes it's the same thing with the lectures even though you know i have a certain lecture i do some variation but for the most part, I do a certain lecture on New England lighthouses, so it's it's more or less the same each time I do it. But the audiences are new, so that's that makes it easier for me to to do it as if I'm doing it for the first time, you know. Uh, and that must be how actors feel when they're doing a play over and over again or whatever. You, it's fresh because you're doing it for new people all the time, and you know I get people at lectures. Somebody can I just did a lecture a couple of weeks ago, and I remember. A woman coming up and saying that's not what i expected and she meant that in a good way she said she didn't know there were so many interesting stories about the people at these lighthouses a lot of people i think have a cursory knowledge they know that lighthouses are beautiful and they know that a lot of them might have lighthouse trinkets in their house or whatever you know little um models or things on the wall but most people as you know don't have really an inkling of the tremendous rich human history that's behind these places. So it's nice being able to convey that to people. I think that's what I, I love most. Yeah. Well, see, it no longer surprises me these, these years now, but when I first started being on cruises with you, it was always, uh, it was, uh, it was an awesome thing to watch people when you were the narrator, they come up to you. Maybe you would, maybe you're autographing a book for them. And it was like, people would be like, Jeremy's a rock star. He's the man, the man, the myth, the legend. And I mean, it just, it was great to see because it was like people, it said to me that you were having this, this meaningful impact and a fun impact in their lives. And I, you know, I, I just thought that today when I hear it, I'm like, yeah, I, I, I totally get it. But it was like, yeah, well, it's funny to me. Yeah. yeah. It's, it strikes me funny sometimes because, you know, you forget when you're doing this stuff, you're, you're so caught up in, in the minutiae of it that, um, 
you know, you forget that it really does have an impact on people. So when somebody comes up to me and, uh, you know, like I'll, I'll be at a lecture and somebody actually comes in with a copy of my book, The Lighthouse Handbook, New England, that they've had, they say that this, I carry this in my car all the time and they'll have sticky notes all through it and pages dog-eared and everything and they want me to sign it. But I love seeing that they've been using it, you know, to think that, wow, I, I wrote that book and they're actually they're actually using it. And I get people saying they listen to they love the podcast. And and uh, that's uh, I need to be reminded occasionally that, yeah, people actually actually listen to it. We will be back with part two of Bob Trapani's interview with Jeremy Dontremont next week. Jeremy's website on New England Lighthouses is newenglandlighthouses.net, and you can find a listing of Jeremy's upcoming lectures there. One of his upcoming lectures will be at the Stratum, New Hampshire Historical Society at 7 p.m. on March 13th. You know, I, I feel like I'm kind of having an out-of-body experience listening to all this stuff about me. Uh, it still feels <laughs> strange, but I really appreciate it, and it was a lot of fun to look back on almost 40 years of my association with lighthouses. So thank you again, Bob. Jeremy, you're welcome. It was a it was a trip down memory lane. Uh, I also think just just people to be able to hear about your diverse lighthouse background. I know there's going to be a lot of folks who know about some of it, but I I think um, you've had an interesting career in lighthouses, and it's just a wonderful thing we can talk about it. Well, definitely brought back some memories. Nice. Well, thanks to everyone involved with the U.S. Lighthouse Society and a reminder to check out the tours, preservation grants, and everything else the Society offers at uslhs.org. Also, a reminder that I will be leading a tour from May 13th to May 20th on Long Island, New York, a U.S. Lighthouse Society tour. I'm really looking forward to it. There is still space on the tour. You can read the details at uslhs.org. Just click on tours. And there's still room on several other tours coming up, too. We'll hear part two of our interview next week. For now, to all our regular listeners and our new ones, thanks for listening and... Keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine